Welcome to The Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 18, Bridget, Columcal, and Columbanus. Welcome back. Sorry for the very long delay. My wife and I moved into a new house this month, so things have been extra busy. However, I now have a much better recording space, which hopefully means more episodes faster. Anyways, if you remember from where we left off, we're continuing our look at different regions in the Middle Ages. And right now we're on Ireland. Last episode we talked all about Patrick of Ireland, how he was born in Britain, kidnapped, escaped, and finally returned to the Emerald Isle to bring Christianity to his former captors. And that's where we left off. But we really don't know what happened near the end of Patrick's life. We have two of his surviving letters, but then the reliable evidence runs out. We don't know what happens next. We don't know Patrick's exact fate. But we do know the spiritual legacy Patrick left behind. So that's what we're going to be looking at this episode. And in particular, we're going to be looking at three Irish Christians and how they carried on Patrick's vision. Though it's tough to limit it just to three. When I was in Ireland... I was discussing Irish saints to my Irish tour guide named Hugh. In our conversation, he somewhat sardonically told me, Well, just about anyone in Ireland who got on their knees back then is sainted now. And Hugh isn't totally wrong, there really are a lot of them. So there are plenty of slightly famous names that I'll mention, but I'll try to keep it mostly to those three. And the three are Brigid, Columkel, and Columbanus. So let's dive in. First, we're going to look at St. Bridget. So if Patrick is the spiritual father of Ireland, then Bridget is the spiritual mother. And while we have copies of letters from Patrick, sadly nothing survives from the hand of Bridget. So Bridget's life, even more so than Patrick's, is shrouded with legends. Just about everything we know about her is conjecture or written much later. Two of the earliest writings about her are really just collections of miracle stories which are sometimes pretty funny. But most likely she was a real person, and very early on in the history of Irish Christianity. Bridget was very likely a contemporary of Patrick. As Patrick's mission started in Ireland, remember that many of the first believers were women. Patrick, in his own account of his life, speaks about how many women were coming to the faith first, and many of them were making oaths of chastity as well. Patrick describes some of these women... In one of his letters, Patrick says this, How wonderful it is that here in Ireland, a people who have never had any knowledge of God, who until now have worshipped idols and impure things, have recently become a people of the Lord and are now called children of God. You can see that sons and daughters of Irish have become brothers and virgins for Christ. But many of them do this against the wishes of their parents, Indeed, their families sometimes punish them cruelly and make all sorts of horrible accusations against them. Still, the number of virgins who have chosen this new life continues to grow so that I can't keep track of them all. This doesn't even include widows and married women who abstain from sex. Sadly, of such women, the ones who suffer the most are the slaves. They face rape and constant threats, but suffer these abuses bravely. God gives these women the grace to follow courageously in his path, even though they are forbidden to do so. 
One of these Irish women was of noble birth, full-grown and quite beautiful, really, whom I baptized. A few days after this, she came to me with something important on her mind. She said that an angel from God had appeared to her and told her that she should become a virgin of Christ if she wanted to be closer to God. Thanks be to God, six days later, she joyfully and wholeheartedly chose that path which all virgins of God take. Many people believe that noblewoman that Patrick describes is Bridget herself. We do know Bridget was born of noble birth, and probably the daughter of a king. Though remember, Irish kings are more like powerful local chieftains, not national monarchs. But still, she grew up with relative influence and prestige. And like most noble women in Ireland at the time, her father was probably keen to get her married off soon. And this was true for much of the ancient world. And this is not because fathers didn't care much for their daughters. Not at all. In fact, there were many reasons for the benefit of the daughter that she should be married. For instance, women in Irish law at the time had the same legal rights as children. So a loving father would want a good husband to protect his daughter. There was also the added benefit of alliances and family connections. If he could marry off a daughter to the right husband, perhaps peace could be achieved between the tribes. So when Patrick showed up with his new message about total devotion of oneself to Christ, this all changed, and many fathers were none too happy about it. And when Bridget heard Patrick's message and accepted it, it's likely her father was one of those who was not thrilled about the change. And in one story of Bridget, we see just that. Right after becoming a Christian, she started giving away all of her father's wealth. And this is common in stories about Bridget. She's always giving her things away to the poor. After a little while of this, her father decided it was getting too expensive to keep her around. And so he said to her, it's neither out of kindness nor honor that I'm taking you for a ride. I'm going to sell you to the king of Leicester to grind his corn. When he arrived at the king's home, he unbuckled his sword and left it in the chariot with Bridget. But while he was in, a leper came to beg from Bridget. All that was near her was her father's sword. So she gave that to the beggar. When the king of Leicester and her father came back to the chariot, her father noticed the sword was missing. And when he found out what happened, he was furious and began to beat her. The king told him to stop and asked why Bridget had stolen her father's property and given it away. If I had the power, answered Bridget, I would steal all your royal wealth and give it to Christ's brothers and sisters. The king of Leicester was not quite as interested anymore and decided to go with the age-old excuse saying, um, she's too good for me. Somehow, Bridget was able to escape from her father's influence. The next thing we know about her is that she became the abbess of a double monastery in Kildare. This monastery quickly became one of the largest and most influential in all Ireland. Now, there are many, and I mean many, stories about Bridget as abbess of Kildare. As I've said before, many of these stories involve Bridget giving things away to the poor, and then God miraculously restoring them. One involves a group of lepers begging from Bridget, specifically asking for beer. Bridget then performs the Irish version of Jesus' miracle at Cana and turns water into beer. There's good reason she's a patron saint of Ireland. And in one story, a man who has the strength of 12 also has the appetite of 12. 
and this proves to be very difficult and expensive for him, so he goes to Bridget to ask her for help. She prays and is able to reduce his appetite to a more normal amount while keeping his strength untouched. And some of the stories are just downright odd. For instance, once Bridget mistakes a sunbeam for a wooden beam and attempts to hang her cloak on it. And, miraculously, this sunbeam holds her cloak up. In one story, she is also accidentally made bishop, when an archbishop gets carried away in the spirit. And there are also some good crossover stories between Patrick and Bridget. In one such story, a woman comes accusing one of Patrick's bishops of seducing her and fathering a child with her. A crowd gathers to see what will happen. Patrick defers to Bridget, who starts questioning the woman. When Bridget does not get satisfactory responses, she starts questioning the newborn. The newborn replies in perfect speech, The bishop is not my father, but a certain base and ugly man who is sitting on the edge of the assembly. My mother is a liar. Then everyone rejoices at the miracle and starts trying to burn the woman at the stake. Thankfully, Bridget stops them and grants mercy to the woman as well. Whatever truth there is in these stories, Bridget certainly was respected and talented. We do know for sure that under Bridget's supervision, her monastery became one of the biggest and most prestigious in all of Ireland, and at one time was the greatest cultural center in all of Ireland. Remember, Ireland at this time did not really have cities. Ireland had many tribes, but it was almost entirely rural. So instead of city churches, like in the more urban Roman Empire, Irish Christianity was spread entirely by monasteries like Bridget's. In fact, it's very likely that Bridget's monastery was at one point the biggest building in the whole country. And 200 years later, in the 600s AD, a monk would write of it. But who can convey in words the supreme beauty of her church and the countless wonders of her city, of which we speak? City is the right word for it. There are so many people living here that justifies the title. It is a great metropolis, which whose outskirts, which Bridget marked out, with clearly defined boundary, no adversary is feared, nor any incursion of enemies, for the city is the safest place of refuge among the towns of the whole land of the Irish. So who exactly was Bridget? Well, it's difficult to say, through all the bits and pieces of stories and legends, but we do know she was determined, wise, generous, and very influential and she helped Christianity to grow deep roots in Ireland. So while Patrick planted the seed of faith, Bridget, with many others, watered and tended it as it grew. Now while Bridget's monastery was one of the biggest, it was one of many. After Patrick, monasteries began popping up all over the countryside. These monasteries were great centers of learning and teaching. So much so that even students from other countries started to come to study there. Our old friend, the Venerable Bede, way back from episode 2, says this about it. Many of the nobles of the English nations and lesser men also had sent out thither, forsaking their native island, either for the grace of sacred learning or a more austere life. And some of them indeed soon dedicated themselves faithfully to the monastic life. Others rejoiced rather to give themselves to learning, going about from one master's cell to another. All these the Irish willingly received, 
and saw to it to supply them with food day by day without cost, and books for their studies and teaching, free of charge. At this time, manuscript writing in Ireland was exploding. Within these different monasteries, monks would copy all sorts of different works. This included the Bible, early church fathers, pagan legends, Greek and Roman classics. In his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, Thomas Cahill argues that many of the works of antiquities we have now were only preserved through Irish scribes copying them. Fun side note, sometimes these copyists would also add their own commentary as well. For instance, one, when copying the Iliad, wrote at the bottom of the page, right after the death of Hector, I am greatly grieved by the above-mentioned death. Another writes very self-reflectively, Sad it is, this little partly colored white book, for a day will surely come when someone will say over your page, The hand that wrote this is no more. Another writes, picking up where his sloppy fellow scribe left off, It's easy to spot Gabriel's work here. One delightful scribe even writes a poem in his work about watching his cat named Pangerban, who hunts mice while he copies away at manuscripts. The poem goes like this. I and Pangerban my cat, tis a like task we are at. Hunting mice is his delight, hunting words I sit all night. Tis a merry thing to see, at our tasks how glad are we. When at home we sit and find entertainment to our mind. Gainst the wall he sets his eye, full and fierce and sharp and sly. Gainst the wall of knowledge I, all my little wisdom try. So in peace our task we ply, Pangerban, my cat and I. In our arts we find our bliss. I have mine, and he have his. That's pretty good stuff. While Irish monks were copying away all sorts of literature and adding their commentary, they were also making it beautiful. They would create something called illuminated manuscripts. These manuscripts have beautifully drawn letters, weaving in images and designs with the text in magnificent colors. The most famous of these is known as the Book of Kells, which is still on display in Dublin. But there are many other illuminated Irish manuscripts found in museums all across Europe. At one of these monasteries, full of learning and writing, we find our next great Irish figure, Columkell. He is also known as Columba, the Latinized version of his name. Columkell means dove of the church, but he would get that name later on. He was born with the name Crimthane, which means fox. We know much more about Columkell than Bridget, but his story, too, is wrapped up in a lot of legend. He was born as the prince of Clan Connell, 521. He very likely could have gone on to become king or even a high king. But as was often custom at the time, he was raised by a foster father, who in his case was a priest. Apparently this priest had a great effect on Columkell because instead of becoming some warrior ruler, he chose to become a monk. Though, as we will see, Columkell would have a hard time giving up some of those warrior tendencies. But at the beginning, things went very well, and he was mentored by a great bishop named Finian of Clonard. And Finian was great in his own right, and would have a huge influence on many Irish churchmen to come. With Finian as his mentor, 
Colin Kell traveled all the way to Tours in France, learning and training to be a monk and an abbot. He was so energetic and willful that he founded 41 monasteries across Ireland before his 41st birthday. But Colin Kell had grown up like a prince, fairly wealthy in Irish standards, and pretty involved in tribal politics. He also had a great love of the finer things in life, especially art, books, and manuscripts. In one story, his favorite book was a Psalter of his mentor Finian, so he decided that he would copy one for himself. But for some reason, and I can't discover why, this was not allowed. Early copyright issues, I guess. So he tried to do it stealthily by night, but to no avail. He was caught and forced to return his copy by the local high king, Dermot. Columkell nursed a grudge for this slight for several years, and later his clan was pulled into a battle against Dermot. So Columkell rallied all his followers and clansmen, and they fought a battle against King Dermot and his army. Dermot was defeated, and Columkell victoriously got his psalter back. But in that victory there was a big problem. You see, monks were not allowed to fight in battles, and definitely not allowed to lead armies. So Columkell was excommunicated, and the only way he was allowed back in the church was by accepting permanent exile from Ireland. Plus, he was given the task as penance. 3,000 men had died in battle that he led, so he had to bring 3,000 more souls to faith. But that is just one story of how Columkell left Ireland. Others believed he simply needed to free himself from the tribal warfare and distractions of his home. Perhaps his royal family was asking for too many favors of him in his monasteries. So whatever the reason was, around the time Columkell was 40, he and 12 companions set off. But they didn't go too far. They found the island of Iona, right off the coast of Scotland, which was just far enough away that Ireland was out of sight. Here, Columkell changed the nature of Irish Christianity. Up to that point, the focus had been spreading the gospel to the Irish and seeking a life of study and devotion as a monk or nun. But now Columkell began to focus Irish attention beyond their shores and into the greater world. Iona was a good spot, because many Irish had started to settle in western Scotland. And while he may or may not have been exiled from Ireland... Apparently, he was still held in high esteem by the Irish. His monastery became very successful and well-known, and soon monks from all over Ireland came to study at the monastery in Iona. We also have stories that people came from Wales, Scotland, and England to learn with him. In fact, it became so popular that pretty soon it was overcrowded. So Columkell made a rule. Every time the monastery reached 150 monks, 12 would leave, and start their own monastery somewhere else. Soon, Irish monks were leaving Iona to spread the gospel all over Scotland. And fun fact on the name of Scotland, Scotty originally meant Irish, actually. The people living in what is now Scotland were called Picts. But the Irish had such a huge influence on that area that it became known as Scotty Minor, a.k.a. Little Ireland. But after some time, the Minor was dropped and the name Scotland was born. And just like Bridget, there are lots of good legends about Columkell. He changes the wind for his sailor friends, even though they need to go in two different directions in the same day. He heals many people, he raises some from the dead, 
but there's also lots of other little delightfully quirky stories. For instance, in one, a boy stops by Columkale's house while he's inside copying a manuscript. The boy asks him through the open door to bless his milk pail. Without stopping from what he was doing, Columkale makes a sign of the cross towards the boy and said a blessing. Suddenly, the lid blew off the top of the pail, and most of the milk was spilled all over. Columkale said, Coleman, today you were careless with your work. There was a devil hiding in the bottom of the pail, and before you poured the milk in, you should have driven it off by making the sign of the Lord's cross. The devil could not withstand the power of the sign. His trembling has shaken the pail and he's escaped, so he spilled the milk. But bring the pail nearer to me so I may bless it. Then, blessing it again, the pail filled back up with milk. I'm not sure what the moral of the story is, but maybe it's that you always need to say your prayers before you eat. There's another great story in which Columkill makes his way past the river Ness. And while he's there, he sees some locals burying a man. He discovers that the man was killed by a great water beast in the river. So Columkill tells one of his friends to swim across the river as live bait. Amazingly, his friend goes without hesitation and jumps in the water. As he swam, the beast surfaced and opened its great mouth right behind him. Until Columkill spoke. In the name of God, go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. The beast immediately stopped, like it was held back by a leash, and then it swam away. All the locals rejoiced and then became Christians. It also happens that this is the first claim sighting of Nessie. Columkell was also a big supporter of poets. Poetry has always been important in Ireland, and during this period, poets were in high demand. You heard the good stuff about Pangerban. In fact, every Irish king, which remember at this time were many, wanted some great poem telling of his reign. But the poets began charging so much that one high king set them into exile and frustration. It took Columkell's intervention for them to be allowed back. After that time, Columkell was considered a patron saint of Celtic poets, and many poems were written about him. Soon most of Scotland was hearing the gospel through the monks of Columkell's monastery at Iona. They also began to spread into northern England as well. One, named Aidan, founded the great monastery of Lindisfarne, where Bede himself would someday live and write. You'll remember some of this from episode 2, about the missionary work to England. So while Rome was sending missionaries to the south of England, Ireland was sending them from the west and the north. The Irish missionaries from Iona and the other monasteries inspired by it soon spread throughout England, Europe, and possibly beyond. And in one legend, an Irish monk named St. Brennan travels all the way across the Atlantic and preaches the gospel to the far-off people on the other side. The next figure we'll be focusing on was only about 20 years younger than Columkell, and he was the next greatest of the Irish missionaries. His name was Columbanus. As we will see, Columbanus was a man with great energy, and never afraid to speak his mind. Columbanus was born the same year as Gregory the Great, in 540 AD. When he was 25, he became a monk, just like Columkell. And at 50, he decided he too wanted to head out with 12 companions. Except he would go to Gaul, what is modern-day France. 
He had great success right away and founded three monasteries. He was always very deliberate in going to places that had not been reached before. But quickly Columbanus became a nuisance to the local bishops. Perhaps driven by jealousy of this foreigner's success in their domain, they summoned him to a council to judge his work. However, Columbanus was not a man to be intimidated, and instead of showing up, he writes them a very poignant letter about how they should be more worried about their own duties than trying to control his. He writes, To the holy lords and fathers, or better brothers in Christ, the bishops, priests, and remaining order of holy church, I, Columba the sinner, send greeting in Christ. I give thanks to God that for my sake so many holy men have gathered together to treat of the truth, faith, and good works, and as befits such, to judge of the matter under dispute with a just judgment through senses sharpened to the discernment of good and evil. If only you would do that more often. He continues and perhaps cuts a little too close when he asks them to be like children and possibly indirectly confronts some of their sins, saying, A child is humble, and does not harbor the remembrance of injury, and does not lust after a woman when he looks on her, and does not keep one thing on his lips and another in his heart. Columbanus was just as open with everyone he spoke to. In fact, we have one letter he wrote to Gregory the Great. In some playful joking, and perhaps backhanded complimenting, he compares Gregory to the previous pope, Leo the Great. Columbanus puns off Leo's name and tells Gregory, Well, even a living dog is better than a dead lion. We don't have Gregory's response, so we don't know how he took the joke. Columbanus's carefree, direct, and brazen attitude finally got him in trouble with one of the rulers in Gaul, a princess named Brunhilda, and Columbanus was forced to leave. So he and some of his followers packed up and headed toward Lombardy to bring the gospel to the Lombards. Remember, the Lombards are a group that invaded northern Italy in the 500s. But on his way there, one of his companions got sick and decided he couldn't go any further. That companion stopped in what is now Switzerland and would become one of the great forefathers of Swiss Christianity, a man named St. Gaul. But Columbanus kept going until he finally did reach Lombardy in 612. And there he founded a monastery called Bobbio. And the stories say that even though he was now in his 70s, he too helped carry wood beams for its construction. In the last few years of his life, Columbanus would continue to write many letters, including to popes, and would continue to make many puns. He would die in 615, leaving behind 60 to 100 monasteries that he helped found, from France, Germany, to Switzerland, and Italy. His work would help deepen the roots of Christianity in Europe, and help be a foundation for future missionaries, such as Boniface from Episode 3. Bridget Columkell and Columbanus represent the great energy of early Irish Christianity. From Patrick on, they and many others transformed Ireland, Scotland, and England, and would go on to have great effect on the rest of Europe. Along with that, we would have lost many ancient works we have now if it were not for those Irish monks and scribes that preserved them. 
Without a doubt, these generations of Irish Christians changed the course of European history. Sadly, this golden age of Irish learning and influence would not last much longer. In the early 800s, Vikings began to pillage the now defenseless Irish monasteries. The Irish, who had been raiders 400 years before, now felt it themselves. The great monastery at Lindisfarne and the one at Iona and even Bridget's Kildare would all be sacked and razed. And while the Vikings would eventually intermarry and take on many of the Irish ways, the Irish would not have the same influence on learning from the 5th to 8th centuries. So that's all for now on Ireland. We will come back there again in the future, as I want to tell the story of at least one more Irishman, Arthur Guinness, founder of Guinness Brewery. But he won't come around until the late 1700s, so it might be a little while before we get to him. But next episode will be a holiday special. We will learn about the jolly man himself, St. Nicholas. He's also a bit legendary, but we'll explore all that when we get there. Also, the t-shirt is designed. It does still have to be finalized and produced. I'll have it on the Facebook page and the website before too long, and hopefully the jolly man in red could have one in your stocking. Sorry again for the delay in this episode. Please don't hesitate to hit me up with questions or comments at the Faithful Forebears Facebook page. Whew, that's not easy to say. Or on the website, faithfulforebears.com, or to the email eric at faithfulforebears.com. And, as always, tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.